Abolition. 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 All right, shifting gears. Bodies believed to be those of 95 black Jim Crow era prisoners forced to perform free labor were unearthed in Sugarland, Texas, as a result of one man's quest to get to the truth. Now, Reginald Moore heard the stories of how Sugarland, a suburb of Houston and home to Imperial Sugar Company, was a sprawling network of sugarcane plantations and prison camps a century ago. From sunup to sundown, convicts were leased by the state to plantation owners to work in the fields chopping sugarcane, sometimes until they, quote, dropped dead in their tracks, end quote, as the state convention of colored men of Texas complained in 1883. Does that sound familiar? Moore researched Sugarland slavery and convict leasing history for 19 years and gathered a hunch that the bodies of former slaves and black prisoners were still buried in Sugarland's backyards. He focused his attention on a site called Imperial State Prison Farm, the one that bore the name of the country's premier sugar company. It was there that the discovery of the 95 graves of the two dozen intact skeletons found all had African-American traits, appeared to be muscularly, muscularly built, Many had the same misshapen bones indicative of repetitive hard labor, and they ranged in age from as young as 14 and as old as 70. Now, this is visceral, unflinching snapshot of the prison industrial complex in its earliest stages. People were buried in mass graves from working themselves to death to enrich the owners of a sugar dynasty, escaping one form of slavery only to be killed by another. Now, the practice was so lethal that it was outlawed in the early 20th century, but it's relevant to this day as the inequities of the criminal justice system are exacerbated when victims are forced to provide labor for pennies on the dollar for large companies and private prisons across the country. And yes, I do mean victims. Moore has volunteered to serve as caretaker for the graves of these men and has vowed to bring meaning to their respective ordeals. Hopefully his work will influence sentencing laws moving forward and prevent future generations of falling back into what's become the 21st century's version of legal slavery.
WUSA 9 coverage on the discovered 95 bodies from convict leasing by Imperial Sugar found in Sugarland, Texas, followed by Gil Scott Heron, Brian Jackson, and the Black and Blues Band, and the track was entitled Change. I'm not sure why I'm hearing such an echo right now. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, and definitely looking forward to tonight's conversation, as well as catching up on some of the things that have happened in the past week. For sure. It seems like I've actually I've been out the last two weeks. Last week we did a rebroadcast, and the week before that, you know, a little birdie told me that Max was joined by the activist, slavery abolitionist, and creator of the Freedom Fest, Demita Bishop. Demita is also the founder of FAIR, Fighting Against Institutionalized Railroading, and the organizer for Freedom Fest 2022, which went down at Grant Park in Atlanta, Georgia, on July 2nd. So tonight, it's a tough episode. It's a special episode, but it's a tough episode. We'll be joined by Shifa Rahman and Brian Palmer of the Convict Leasing and Labor Project, and Savannah Eldridge of the Abolished Slavery National Network. The mission of Convict Leasing and Labor Project is to expose the history of on- and ongoing uh, impact of the convict leasing system and its connection to modern prison slavery, while it's restoring the dignity of all victims of forced labor and their descendants. CCLP aims to lead a national conversation on the history and impact of forced labor, including chattel slavery, convict leasing, and the modern crisis of mass incarceration. The Sugarland 95 are the 95 African-American individuals unearthed during construction in Sugarland, Texas, 30 miles southwest of Houston. Archaeologists found evidence that the 95 individuals belong to the state of Texas's convict leasing system and were buried in the unmarked grave site. The first, bound, 
the first bone was found in February 28 by a backhoe operator clawing through the dirt on land owned by the Fort Bend Independent School District. By the summer, the remains of 94 men and one woman, all African-American victims of convict leasing, had been recovered on the future site of a career and technical education center, ranging in age from 14 to 70. The inmates had muscular builds but were malnourished, their bones misshapen from back-breaking, repetitive labor. They were buried in plain pine boxes somewhere between 1878 and 1911. CLLP has been at the forefront of the fight to pre- uh, preserve the Sugarland 95's burial ground and ensure they are properly memorialized. So as always, we'll have powerful music clips, and we'll bring the ancestors' words back to life for a new generation with our Bridging the Gap segment. So before we jump into it, uh, toss it over to you, Max, and bring us up to date with what's been going on with you. Well, uh that definitely was a powerful opening, uh, just the beginning of what we'll be conversing about this afternoon, this evening, depending on where you are. Uh, but the past week has been extremely trying. Uh, people remember during the past month, we've been keeping you up to date on the fight in California for ACA3, which would have removed involuntary servitude from the California State Constitution. Uh, we worked on it for about a year and a half, if not longer. Got to the final hearing. We had to go to the Senate and get 27 votes and then go immediately to the Assembly right after that. And both were in session. And so we had enough of the people to vote, but they played a trick on us. And they literally would not give the a roll call. So without a roll call, they just kept uh, stalling by bringing in other bills And the assembly finally adjourned. And without the assembly, we couldn't pass. It was really an underhanded, unethical, dirty way to kill a bill to end slavery in California. But that's exactly what they did. And the reasoning behind it, uh, you can hear it on some of our videos at Abolition Today on YouTube. But the reasoning behind it uh, came initially from the Department of Finance, who wrote a letter uh, you remember that, right? You see, they wrote a letter saying that yeah, they did this sure. assessment and it would cost as much as $1.5 billion if they were forced to pay minimum wage for inmates in California. The same California that uses, you know, uh, slave firefighters <laughs> at a dollar a day. First of all, our bill ain't about paying inmates. It's about removing this uh, offensive language an archaic language that allows crimes against humanity to occur, to remove that from the Constitution. But nonetheless, they assumed they would have to do that, and they figured $1.5 billion was too much to pay for freedom, that they can't end slavery because it costs too much. The same state that had nearly $100 billion for surplus money in California, $100 billion, was whining like there was no tomorrow about how Ending slavery would cost them one point five billion. Yusuf. And then on top of that, you know, you know, this was really initiated by comments by uh Gavin Newsom and I'm just thinking it was just a few months earlier, you and I were all the way out in Sacramento banging the drum, you know, getting people to vote to keep him in office, to keep Larry Elder out of office. And right. so just thinking this is how he and his administration turned around and thanked us. 
Well, uh, we're going to talk more about that at another time. The fight goes on. There are still five states in this country that are on the ballot in 2022 to end slavery. And that is just incredibly epic to even consider five more states. Should For we sure. All five, For sure. It'll be a total of nine states that have removed slavery from their constitutions without a caveat. With that being said, brother, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. Uh, if you want to do the introductions. Sure. So uh, we have Shifa Rahman, the campaign director of Convict Leasing and Labor Project. They are dedicated to racially just memorialization practices, and this became most prominent with the Down With Willie movement that they led while a student at Rice University. Also, we have Brian Palmer, who's a multimedia journalist, educator, and advocate for historic black cemeteries who live in Richmond, Virginia. So welcome and, to Abilene. And one more. With we also have Savannah Eldridge uh, from the oh, Abolish National Network and uh, yes. founder of Be, Be Frank with Justice. She's on more boards uh, than I can count <laughs> and is also exactly. a nurse full time. Uh, indeed, and, welcome, everybody. Ahead, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Shifa, uh, Brian, Savannah, welcome home. You know, this is home thank for you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Well, let's start with Brother Shifa. Um, am I pro- pronouncing your name correctly, Shifa? Uh, Shifa, yes. That, that works. Shifa. That works. Okay, okay. Shifa. Mm-hmm. Right. Shifa. Brother Shifa, um, uh, if you have any commentary about what we heard at the opening, because that was really the first description of who we're talking about and what has occurred. And uh, did you like the music that we followed it up with? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think um, I think the, the, the message of it definitely very much resonated within uh, our fight for, um, for ensuring that uh, convict leasing is something that we, we need to have the uh, absolute complete awareness of in our history and also understanding our, con- our continual fight for liberation, that it's not over, that we are still fighting to have this history properly represented as a means towards, uh, towards black liberation. So, yes, it definitely, it definitely very much uh, resonated there. Um, so, so, yes, uh, to talk a little bit, I guess, about um, where CLOP is at now as far as um, continuing the fight for for the convict leasing system, continuing the fight uh, to raise awareness about the convict leasing system and to preserve the Sugar Land 95. As, um, as you, as you um, already uh, mentioned, the, that Fort Bend Independent School District right now is on a quest to avoid any and all liability against what they have done in desecrating ancestral remains who have, who have, um, who have, been, uh, who have suffered under this convict leasing system. Um, as you mentioned there, there's, it's just, a it's just a long bending road of a system that was implemented to use the law as a means to subjugate black bodies and to rent and render them in a condition which they suffered even worse than, uh, slavery. Cause even in slavery, there was an effort to preserve, um, preserve, um, the black people that they had enslaved for their labor force. With convict leasing, they just recycled them in and out, basically, which um, which is something that um, we cannot um sit by and allow ourselves to pretend that it wouldn't happen, 
which is something that Texas right now is in the battleground of um, fighting preserving, as there's a lot of advocacy against um, critical race theory and against uh, having this history be uh, disseminated within the case of uh, Texas. So Texas. Um, so, so all in all, it's uh, pretty, I feel like a lot of what you mentioned about the the Sugarland 95, and as a visible reminder of this convocation system, is something that needs to be preserved and and continue to raise awareness of. Uh, that's very much um, that's very much an important piece that we cannot um, let slide by. Exactly. Um, I want to move on to Brother Brian as well. Um, maybe I'll ask you a different question. Actually, uh, how when did you become exposed, first of all, to convict leasing? Was the Sugarland ninety five your initial exposure to it? So that is an excellent question because I am not a member of CLLP. I had been following their work. Um, my story is. I am a descendant of or a, a relative of some folks buried at a cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, and we are fighting against national legislation, which I'll talk about in a second, but I was looking for cemetery reclamation and memorialization groups around the country, particularly in the South, that were be, that, that were especially effective in telling the stories of these long abuse sites. And when I say long abuse, we're talking about sites uh, that range from um, small three, four, 12 person cemeteries to our cemeteries in the city of Richmond, where we've got 76 acres uh, that have not been adequately funded, have not been adequately supported. So um, Shifa actually pulled me in and said, Hey, Let's talk to Abolition Today about this national legislation mm -hmm. that's being sponsored by a North Carolina congresswoman, Alma Adams, and is being pushed by my congressman, Don McEachin. The Congress is actually on the verge of passing what is called the African-American Burial Grounds Preservation Act. It's a really grand name. It's a fantastic name. It's uh, H.R. 6805, and in the Senate, it's S3667. So we got a great name, but nowhere mentioned in that legislation is the Afro-descendant community, the African-American descendant community, or just descendant community. So this is something that we've been pushing back on, because how can you have a national law that it's already in hearings, it's already in committee. How can you have a national burial ground and not name in the legislation the descendant community, the Afro-descendant community. So we've actually written alternative language and sent it to our congressman and said, consider this. So to watch and to hear what Shifa is doing, that's one effort among dozens in this country. And as I said, I was drawn to them because of the consistency and the power of their message. The Sugarland 95. You can't forget that. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate that. Um, and I want to get to our, our other guest here today, um, Sister Savannah Eldridge. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you saw this connection, too, and you were involved in putting us together with CLLP and Brother Brian here. 
Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Thanks, Max, and uh, good evening, everybody. Um, yeah, so um, I learned about the LLP um, during my research about um, 13th Amendment and specifically looking at um, Texas's history and relationship with slavery and convict leasing um, when I was considering what legislation could look like uh, to finally close the loophole here in the state. Um, I had worked with Max, you know, with uh, Free the 13th um, down here in Texas, and I specifically, in our organizing and kickoff of the campaign, wanted to, um, like, correlate the work that was being done now, um, really in in any respect, because what I was finding was that a lot of people who are talking about slavery um, they focus on the history, and it's very hard for them to correlate uh, what's going on now um, versus what what has happened in the past. So um, our uh, we formed the Coalition to Abolish Slavery in Texas, and we had our kickoff um, um, event in Fort Bend County. Um, I was advised by a mentor that, you know, if I kind of got some pushback in Sugarland, just, you know, don't really worry about it. So I, I really specifically want to focus on Fort Bend County because of the work that was being done around the Sugarland 95 and also because uh, I had planned to have Rep. Ron Reynolds carry the bill. Um, he actually ended up being a co-sponsor, um, but nonetheless, he, he did come out. Um, and we had a great showing of support for the event. We had um, a large group of formerly incarcerated people there. And it was just a great way um, to just kind of, like, announce that we were doing this work. Um, but I was inspired also by Reginald Moore. Um, you guys know um, he founded CLLP, and I was um, very inspired by his work. Um, and, of course, sad to hear about his untimely passing. But, um, yeah, that, that's kind of what – that is what um, inspired me. And um, I've kind of been in the loop with the LLP ever since and happy to hear that um, Shifa is uh, taking on um, the lead role in this fight and, and happy to be able to connect the two and see how we can uh, work together. Um, I'm glad of that. You know, we've been following this story since 2018 when it first came out and uh, Brother Moore was still alive. And uh, Savannah's been talking about it since I've known her. <laughs> so I'm glad that you were right. able to get together. Um, I see that the bill that we're referring to says uh, it's establishing a program to preserve previously abandoned, undeserved, and other African-American burial grounds without would help communities identify and record burial grounds and preserve local history while better informing development decisions and community planning. Sounds like a bucket of words, uh, but I have seen Mm -hmm. that in action to some degree. Um, I remember when we recommemorated God's Little Acre out in Rhode Island um, there. It's one of the oldest and largest, but one of the oldest African-American free and enslaved uh, cemeteries in America, and I remember seeing how they would bury them. Uh, I called it uh, stone uh, bouquets because they would have three, four, five different headstones that were so worn out without any names, just planted all together, meaning that the whole family or groups of people were all in one hole right there. Uh, it's pretty amazing to see stuff like that and to know uh, that we don't even talk about that in this country. Uh, I want to go back to Brother uh, Sheffer. 
you know, one of the things that stood out for me is we're on the same page. Looking at your website, the uh, except for prisoners duly convicted, convict leasing as the mi- missing link, that's really uh, what stood out for me is because most people mm-hmm. don't know about convict leasing. And it is the missing link between chattel slavery and what we are experiencing here right now today. Was that your first exposure to convict leasing or had you already been aware of it? Um, at least, um, I had a slight, um, a slight bit of awareness when a friend mentioned that they were affiliated with, um, they were working as an intern with, uh, TCJE, which is the Texas Center for Justice and Equity. Um, so the current president of uh, CLOP, who was uh, Reginald Moore's close friend, um, is also serving as, um, is also, is also involved as an attorney with, um, with, with their work. So a lot of, um, my awareness was just loosely in the conversation with there, but initially when I started working um, with with CLOP into um, into their efforts and endeavors, I was able to learn a lot more into the the um, the intricacies of specifically the Sugarland 95, um, and that being something that 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 being something that was found that was so historic back in 2018. That was so. Um, that was absolutely a landmark to have even recognized it. And Reginald Moore knew that and continued to push for that. And the district continued to give them dirt um, through throughout his uh, advocacy. I will say, um, so at least um, the more I was able to, you know, understand convict leasing and learning about that, as it's, as you mentioned, the missing, missing link, which is why it's so vital, um, as Brian emphasized earlier, to have these, reminders of our history be told through the right perspective. And the only essential way to do that is to ensure that parity is required, structural parity is required to give descendant communities the um, a, an amount of stakeholding power that is not subservient, that is not as, as consultants for landowners, the owners of these lands that we, that are, that have these grave sites and that are these historical reminders that serve as this sugar plantation. And currently, currently in the, currently what's going on, at least in this, in the context of the Sugarland 95 is SBIZ had backed out of a deal that was signed by Governor Abbott in 2019 to, um, to transfer ownership of this land over to, over to the county because beforehand, after two task force, which were affectionately called by a by a colleague colleague of mine, Sotara, with um, the National Black United Front, um, as the trash forces, so they were essentially task force um, task forces created uh, to essentially try and get communities pr- permission for what FBIZ has already decided to do. For example, they were intending on moving all the bodies that they uncovered elsewhere to continue construction of the career center which um, led to at least a major opposition. But fast forward to when, as, as I said, a year after the bodies were discovered in 2019, that he signed that into law, um, that he signed that into law. The FBIZ corroborated with the judges and talking about the, the necessity for reburying the bodies and, and whatnot, which they were left out in the open in the Texas heat, in the Texas 100-degree heat for over a year. So, as you could tell, there was definitely not as much consideration given to um, these ancestors that have been that have remained here, and then decided to re- rebury them. But 
to loop back into this perspective that these are examples of which FBASD is continuing to avoid connecting with um, defendant, defendant communities, that this long process that they've taken to test the remains of the DNA, to run the sequencing, to connect them to relatives, they're just now running the entry sequences at least this summer to be able to detect how well-preserved they are. That's kind of where we got that. Meanwhile, in uh, Tulsa, where they're able to find uh, descendants of the Black Wall Street massacre, that the descendant, the descendant coalition was, was already was formed to such an extent that they were able to push for that DNA testing was able to immediately get, um, get started, at least within the process. Understanding that memorialization is nothing without knowing who the descendant community is and potentially could be and be able to understand it as an expansive definition, as, um, as just, just like uh, Antoinette Jackson, who is the founder of the Black Cemetery Network, has emphasized in our roundtable. We'll, we'll, we'll have a video posted most likely um, coming from, from our roundtable that we had on Juneteenth. But in this, in this roundtable, we discussed about the essential factor that descendants have and not only being able to have input given from them, in order to preserve um, the Sugarland 95, but to but to be able to tell the story through the proper lens, and in such a in such a case that DNA testing would be prioritized, and if it was in federal le- legislation uh, that the that the descendant community, the African American descendant community, or the Afro descendant community, is able to be um, be at a p- place of power that is um, pushed for federally then we can not, no longer excuse any of the methods that have been done to avoid liability to desecrate um, ancestors that the Sugarland 95 has had. Um, and in essence, a lot of um, – so that's kind of when I was able to come into this, knowing the Sugarland 95, now at least being able to understand that here and now is what compels, compels us to push the fight forward um, ongoing and knowing that our ancestors deserve – nothing but respect from the from the atrocity of slavery that is um something that is still ongoing through mass incarceration and this convict leasing plantation certainly in 95 is a reminder of exactly that right um just recently the aclu released that 154 page report the one i sent to you i don't know if you got a chance to look through it uh but they pointed out a lot of the similarities that are going on right now which is the continuation of this convict lease system uh, where it's uh, costing us, or they're extorting as much as $13 billion out of free labor from inmates across the country. Uh, and it's so much more than just free labor. You're taking away their freedom, their dignity, their lives. You're working them to death. It's Eighth Amendment violations and all kinds of terrible things going on. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, the founder of all of this, the man that started this all, Reginald Moore, um, I have a clip of him that I was listening to him speak. In a uh, and it was an interview he was doing called Meet well with a group called Meet in the Middle Chronicles, and in part one he talked about his impressions because he he was a prison guard at one time you know back in the eighties I believe, and he was watching these same things occur and to him he saw history repeating. I want to share that clip with you guys. Is that all right? You all good with that? Sounds good. Okay. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's share. 
awesome. Let's share this clip of Reginald Moore's interview on Meet in the Middle uh, Chronicles, and it's going to have in the background Lightning Washington and Prisoners singing Good God Almighty, and it's going to be followed by Esperanza Spaulding's Land of the Free. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Abolition. So I, I, I just want to get this straight. Um, the, the warden's house was the old manor house of the plantation? Uh, well, <clears throat> at the plantation, the system kind of ended around, the company lease system started really in around 1808 and 1912. And ironic how this happened is that when Cunningham and Ellis had this farm, then they sold it to the Kimler family. And then the Kimler family around 1912, they sold it back to the state. And that's when the state took it over. That's when they built this house called the Flanagan House, which that house was built around 1912. And that was the warden's house that was over the central prison. So yeah. it wasn't the original plantation okay. home that was built in. Right, right. It was built. It wasn't an original plantation home, but on that particular site, which uh, I believe, from my research, it was uh, the old plantation houses were there prior to that mm-hmm. because of the conduciveness of that land and that soil. Uh, so it was a previous house there uh, on that site prior to this Flanagan house being built in 1912. But the Flanagan house was the one you was planning on using. Yes, that was one I was using for my book and still plan to use for the book and uh, in an opening documentary. Mm-hmm. I think also uh, I've heard you speak several times and just uh, your point of view when you first got hired and walked out there, the vision of all the men in the field and the officers gave you a feeling that you were still back in the 1800s. And this was mid 1980s, right? And sort of like the gone and you know gone and wind, you know, with the head back in that, that old plantation, you know, type of feel. Uh, because when I first started there, we had no black building majors, awards, or captains in the whole Texas part of the criminal justice system. All the guys who worked outside uh, were on the horsebacks who were overseeing the uh, the guys who were in the field all white. And so it just gave me uh, uh, reflecting back when we were in the uh, uh, in the stage where in the antebellum period, when uh, the old overseers would look over the in the uh, slaves and uh, and and treated them the same way. So I saw no difference with you know these guys out there chopping cotton and weeding and hoeing and uh, and and. During that period of time, the CDC was totally self-sufficient, so they did a lot of agriculture work, and uh, just felt like, you know, because when you say CDC, that was the correctional Texas, Texas Department of Corrections. Right, right. It is not called the Texas Department of Criminal Justice; called TDCJ. Now, during that period, it was just called Texas Department of Corrections, mm-hmm. and uh, so that just reminded me, and uh, the fact that I was working at the on the first. Uh, prison farm that was built by the state of Texas, which was the Just One Unit, and that was the first building, and so it was so old and antiquated, along with sending these guys out on horseback and and uh, uh, being all white, and the majority of the guys in the field basically was majority black, so it just kind of took me back to 
uh, period that was still existing. It should have been over, but still existing. Oh, you know, so. Just uh, like deja vu, like deja vu, like deja vu. Uh, yeah, 
I, I've heard, um, actually, I've heard uh, Reginald speak um, in the past, but just um, his words really resonate and are very empowering, especially during this time. And for me right now, being at the center of this work um, and hearing him say a lot of the same sentiments that I've heard and, and felt in doing this work, um, I definitely, um, it brings me back to, you know, when, when I first, uh, learned about the work that was being done and, you know, hearing and reading him talk about his commitment um, to the fight and, you know, learning learning through, like, being in the center of it, right, um, which is like what Brian said, you know, a, a lot of descendants and, you know, um, people who are moved, like, to action, that's how we start, no matter what the, the movement is about. And so it, it's a, it's very um, grounding um, to hear his words, and um, it, it it motivates me um, honestly. I just want to name that like it's it's motivating to me um, to just keep pressing forward because this is very difficult work. I think the part that it really touched me, my soul, just a couple of words after hearing everything he said when he got towards the end to discuss the pain, uh, the lamenting, uh, the, the confusion of that it's still here. Mm-hmm. I can see it with my own eyes. you got the white man on the horses. you got the black man in the field doing everything, including picking cotton, being whipped and abused. And, uh, and, and then to think it's still here. Like, I, I can see he said it shouldn't exist, but it still exists. It still exists, and it still exists right now. Uh, to a very much a large degree, and you can go to places like Parchman Prison or Angola Prison and see the mirror mm-hmm. image of that happening right there. And these grave sites are probably in each one of those places. I know there's one in Maryland that they found. There's one in the Hunts Point section of the Brock Bronx that they found. There's another one in a, under a university in Georgia, it's like freaking poltergeist, particularly what happened mm-hmm. in Sugarland. You know, you've got all of these institutions built literally on the backs of black people, literally built on their backs, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it, it is probably the most glaring example of that transition from you owning us like pigs and cows to the state working us with no care for our health or welfare because of, as brother, um, the brother that wrote the book, One Dies, Jay Mancini, he said uh, mm-hmm. that with convicts so plentiful, they were seen as disposable. So you didn't even care if we lived anymore. If one died, get another. Uh, let's go back to brother. Uh, uh, let's go back to brother Shifa. Yes. Shifa. Let's go back to you. Comments, questions, anything? No, yeah, definitely. A lot of a lot of what you said is very um very crucial for us to understand that that exploitation is something that is as interest, intrinsically linked to the history of this country as um as um as the milk that it becomes expired is uh, in, is linked to the container that it gets stuck in throughout all the time it does. Like that is that is how deep um, the connection is that that um, the exploitation of black people within America 
um, is is able to be found. And the and like I said, comic leasing is essential is an essential um is an essential piece of that history, that missing link to understand that to understand that incarceration is just another continual um mode of that. And having people understand the brutality of um that has gone through from uh come to the these um individuals, the Sugar Land ninety five for um for constructing for for constructing for um for producing sugar cane. For um for being a, for being in a position where their labor where their labor is just cons, considered as expendable at as expend is considered expendable and and trait and uh and a cured for capital for for Cunningham and Ellis the two plantation owners that um that operated within Sugarland within the Sugarland 95 that have that have become um essentially rich and there's um there's aspects in terms of disseminating that history that become um, that has to be recognized as um, recognized as truly as truly giving in the insight about who these people were. Um, the memorial, uh, the Sugarland 95. Right now, the process of memorialization that FASB has um, undertaken in collaboration with Ma- with Mass Design. One thing that has to be considered is how these stories um, have to be told, and that's why we have had to continue to call for DNA testing. That is why we need to see the names because right now, if you go to the Sugarland 95 right now, you see that you see that those what you were describing there, a lot of the the fact that they were that the the infrastructure of um, Sugarland, Texas, was, was built upon the backs of these convicts. And all we see when we walk by their graves, when we try to grieve, when we, we are grieving for our for our humanity, and all you see is unknown number one, unknown number 53, unknown number mm. 74. That is all we see now because even the, even with the collection of names, those names are not matched to those um, graves without the DNA test that to be run in order to match those um match the samples to the, the names, to the stories that these people lived and figuring out and uncovering this research and being able to have that so that their humanity at least is recognized and not um sensationalized such that such that um you're you're constructing a memorial to potentially have the possibility um, as uh, I was able to send there, if you were if you were to look now at the community engagement meetings that FBIZ has hosted, um, and the synthesis and the synthesis of each of the meetings, if you go to the last one that they published, which is session three, they discussed what potential programming they're having to entail for reconstructing the the Sugarland 95 into an outdoor memorial space. There, there, there. One proposal that's being tossed around is the potential for the potential for experiential learning to be present at, at the site of the Sugarland 95 by demonstrating how to harvest and grow sugarcane. And that is something like, yes, I mean, a lot of that, re, a lot of the kind of that reaction is just, um, it's, mm. it's honestly so callous to be able to, you know, put all of what the Sugarland 95 has endured for however many years that they've been in, for 14-year-olds to have worked on this plantation, before 
14. That is before in this day and age you are legally able to vote, where, where you're legally able to um, drive a car, where you're legally, legally able to drink. And, and all of this, you were before, before those ages, before you get into a capacity of in stage of that, you are, on, you are working in the comic leasing plantation. What is that story being told through, through just mere demonstrations that don't get at the heart of what they had endured? Um, so the brevity – so when I reflect and think about a lot of the, the clips that you mentioned uh, that you uh, showed, my bad, um, of, um, of that interview and of what they described as the grief and the, and the ongoing work that needs to be done for our liberation, that – the memorial the memorial should represent needs to represent something that doesn't that provides the gravity for it but doesn't um sensationalize it sensationalize the brutality that they've endured wow so uh i don't i don't recall who sent the uh article but this article uh, entitled "The Many Oblivions of Babi Yar." I think Brian, you wanted to speak about that. You know how this Jewish Holocaust Memorial, uh, the relevance towards the Sugarland '95 uh, attempts to have that memorialized. That was Shifa. Yeah, that was Shifa. Oh, that said that. Sorry, yeah. But we are coming up. Uh, I confused the two voices. No, I apologize. No problem. Uh, from what I understand, Brian, you do have to leave at 8, right? So I want to give an yeah. opportunity for you to be able to tell us whatever you want our audience to hear or know. I know that you're very much involved in the bill, which has other duplicates in other states across the country. Is that correct? Uh, so this this bill is a national bill, so it's it it so is it's a claiming. Bill. Hmm. A federal bill. Yeah, yeah. Federal bill. Yeah. So let me just make a connection between the people, the ninety-five, the Sugarland ninety-five that Shifa and the CLLP folks are trying to memorialize, and the other African American folks in thousands of burial grounds mostly across the former Confederate states, but we're talking, you know, as you all were talking about in as far north as Maine and in other sites, Rhode Island, so on and so forth. So um, the cemeteries that I speak most about are in Richmond, Virginia, and Henrico County. Uh, at uh-huh. these two sites, East End and Evergreen Cemetery, we've got well over 60,000 African-American people buried between the years of 1892 and the early 2000s. Uh, and, in fact, there's, there, there was a section of one of these cemeteries that was operating until around 2016. So if this bill becomes a law, the descendants of people at all of these thousands of cemeteries will be written out of all of the things that Shifa was just talking about. This is a small bill with a grand name that says there's going to be $3 million for all these sites. It's a, really a pittance for all these sites. But right. it's, it's, it's the symbolism rather than the amount. If you write legislation and say that it's for 
African American burial grounds preservation, then the, the descendants of the people buried in those sites should have some say. Shifa said the magic words, structural parity. So descendants should have structural parity with the cemetery owners or the owners of the land on which the cemeteries rest. And that's where CLLP and other groups um, are on the same page or are having the same experience because there's so many of these long abused African-American burial grounds that are owned largely by white folks, but also by local governments, state governments. We can't even get access to those. So you're going to write legislation that doesn't even acknowledge that? I'm sorry, that doesn't make any sense. So I would suggest to folks that they take a look at H.R. 6805, and there's a tremendous PR effort pushing this bill now, and they take a, a look at S3667. They count how many times they see the word landowner or owner, and then they count the times that they see descendant or descendant community. So you're going to come up with five or so for landowner, owner, property owner, but descendant, you will come up with zero. So zero. this is just, this is Jim Crow 2.0. This is an okey-doke form of symbolic legislation, and we have to block this. We have to insist that we, as descendants of these people, the Afro-descendant community, we chose that term because that's the term that Charlie Rangel used, and he introduced that term into the congressional record. So we're using their language to try and improve their bill. We have a revised bill we sent to them and said, hey, we want structural parity. That's what Shifa said. And you got to name us first, Afro-descendant community. So that's the thought that I would leave folks with, that there are – so many burial grounds across this country, and as I said before, there are outdoor archives of our experience, the black American, African American experience, but they're outdoor archives of the American experience, and they are sacred grounds from which we all draw strength. Now, I definitely thank you for that, especially speaking about Virginia with my father's side of the family coming from Buckingham County, you know, right mm -hmm. there, so... You know, just right in the heart of it. Uh, please give out website, contact information, how they can get involved, any upcoming rallies, anything that you have going on out there. We do well, have a bill, HR 6805, on our page at Abolition Today on Facebook, so you can find the bill there and look through it as well. Go ahead, Brian. And if, if, if folks uh, have access, to social media, they can follow the Friends of East End. Let's all run that all those words together on Instagram, on Twitter, and on and and on Facebook. Um, you can look up the bill, do your own examination, and write to your Congress people and your senators because yes, it's in committee now, but this is going to be voted on before the midterms. They're trying to jam this through and. Our, our feeling is that this kind, of this kind of symbolism can hurt the very efforts that we're talking about right now, the very efforts for people in their communities, descendants in their communities, like the folks at CLLP, to do the work that they need to do, memorialize the folks who are buried in these 
burial grounds. So that's what I encourage folks to do. Thank you, Brian. That's much appreciated. Um, I definitely see that symbolism in here for sure. Uh, it's also a way of denying accountability or reparations uh, by exactly. keeping it nameless and whitewashing it, basically. Uh, which is the other question that we had uh, regards to the name. I see that the um, FBISD uh, is wants to name it one thing, but is it Bullhead? which is based on a place or location, whereas, uh, is it Ellis and, I forget the second name, um, the actual Cunningham, maybe? Cunningham, yeah. Ellis and Cunningham was the original owners of the property that ran the, was it the Imperial Sugar Company? It's insane. Yes. And, and, mm-hmm. and national legislation that does not recognize grassroots efforts to memorialize their own folks site that will strip us of our power and that's why we have right. to resist that and that's why we have to make the connections too between these burial grounds that you were talking about whether it's Rhode Island or or, or you know or, or or Texas they're all connected because it's all the same African American community um, one time I visited my wife and I with Whitney Plantation, which is the uh, it was the first slavery museum in the United States. It's out in Louisiana, and on mm-hmm. there they had this memorial uh, marker in front of a cage that could hold maybe. I mean, if you were being humane, it would hold maybe twelve people. Um, so it was like eight feet long, about six feet wide, made totally out of metal uh, with like um, crossbars, four sides, and in the middle top. And on it, they described how this was what was used for convict leasing on this sugar plantation in Louisiana where they had the big bowls yes. that they would let them out to work to, in the big bowls. Um, and it was just so horrifying. My wife took a little piece of the metal made a bracelet for me with it, so I'll always remember that, what they had to endure. So when they weren't working, they were stuck in this, literally an oven where they probably would die just from heat exposure in that. And that's what was done to our ancestors. Um, Brother Shabbat? Oh, Brian, go ahead. I just wanted to say something about the Whitney Plantation because you've got all of those plantations along the Mississippi River that celebrate slavery. Whitney Plantation celebrates the enslaved. It memorializes the slave. Dr. Ibrahim Asek, who's the historian, who's done the research to tell the stories of those enslaved people. So you don't go straight to the big house when you take the Whitney Plantation tour. Right. You see those sites that you were just talking about. You hear the name. Mm-hmm. Where they have names, they name people. And that's what we're talking about. They mm-hmm. have they, that, that form of grassroots local memorialization and historic interpretation gives life to the enslaved in ways that none of these other places along that river where people, white people get married and, you know, and and have parties and stuff do. And that's what's so powerful about that site. You see the strength and you see the suffering. Yeah. My wife and I read those names off as well as the quotes that they left behind. You know, they found some little quotes that they would say, and we read those 
straight from the memorial and uh, their names, trying to do just what you said. It's so important. We remember our ancestors because they weren't all the criminals and violent terrorists that they say they were. They were just normal people who were caught up in convict leasing and worked to death. Uh, Simple as that. Uh, we got to remember yeah. them and the descendants, because if you don't know who is their descendants, then who is the person or people that you're supposed to pay repar- reparations to? Because this is the United States that did this. This is Imperial Sugar that did this. This is Sugar Land, Texas that did this, and somebody owes a debt. Mm-hmm. It also points to a crime as well that occurred. All right. Uh, thank you, Brother Brian. We appreciate you being here today. Say, it was a privilege. Indeed, man. Uh, we look forward to working with you on this issue in the future. All right, let's it go over to – have a blessed night, brother. And if you do have some power, continue to tune in. The power, it's going to be a powerful show tonight. Um, yeah, he's already right. gone, but yeah. hopefully he heard you. Savannah, I know you're just dying to chime in too, right? Yeah, I'm still on. Um, I I really was thinking about uh, what Shifa said and um, Brian about, um, you know, the name, right? And what is in a name and really thinking about the fact that, like, words do matter. Um, And as important as it is for us to fight to memorialize um, our ancestors, um, there's also been a parallel fight. Um, in relation to, like, removal of statues and more so, like, here in the state of Texas, um, and recognizing that a lot of our prisons are or were plantations and or built on uh, land where slaves were owned. Um, there's been a, a fight to uh, rename uh, some of those uh, buildings. Oh, some of those units, rather. Um, and they actually did rename three uh, prisons here in the state of Texas um, who were named after um, one uh, was Darrington, and, and John Darrington was, um, he was like this huge mega plantation owner from Alabama, actually. Um, and it also happened to be the prison where um, they were doing the uh, tire retreading, um, which, came up in a, you know, in a contract here in the city of Houston and ultimately led to um, the city not going with the contract. But, um, yeah, words do matter. And the adding of language um, in the budget to prohibit um, the prison from being um, used uh, really brought me back to, like, our work, right, And, and how we are having to try to, like, Specify that no slavery is not okay for anybody, right? And adding that name to name that this is not okay, right? And I I think that this the work um, to preserve history is so important because when people are able to see that, um, like like Mr. Moore said in his interview, like this is still happening, this is still going on, and people are still fighting this fight. Um, it will really bring things to home for for other people uh, to kind of recognize mm-hmm. that oh you know like when we're talking about the deplorable conditions I mean it's triple digit heat right now in the state of Texas and most prisons do not have air conditioning so when you're talking about people in prison in deplorable mm-hmm. conditions people are still dying they're being cooked in the summer yep. um, and still forced to work so. Yep. That uh, what I saw. 
when I saw Whitney Plantation is happening in Texas prisons uh, where they're being baked alive. Mm-hmm. It's cruel and unusual punishment of the highest degree. Uh, all right. Well, you know, it has been some powerful stuff going through here tonight, and I would like to keep uh, bookending it with some clips of music. Uh, if you're just tuning in, I want to play a clip that will let you know what we've been talking about this whole hour. Um, it'll give you a better description of it as well as uh, share some good music with you. So you're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Today we've been joined by our, our friends at CLLP, the Convict Leasing and Labor Program. And uh, that's Brother Brian, Brother Shifa, and Sister Savannah. And we'll be right back after this clip. Abolition. Abolition. For a period of nearly 80 years between the Civil War and World War II, black Southerners were no longer slaves, but they were not yet free. What happened in that period of time was so much more terrible than anything most Americans recognize or understand today. In one of the most shameful chapters of American history, generations of black Southerners were forced to labor against their will. Free black people could be just picked up and put in jail. The sheriff department could sell people to corporations and coal mines. He locked me up for three days. And after that, he said, if I don't go to work, he'll put me in the river down there. People's lives were truly stolen from them. Their freedom was taken away. All the southern states used the criminal justice system to put African Americans back into a position as close to slavery as they possibly could. These were real people who were deemed to be of no value. Maybe now, through the telling of this history, these individuals can receive some measure of justice. After your freedom, no jobs available, got you begging and pleading. Please come and get you and lock you up for no reason. Re-enslaved, but they called it convict leasing. Manual labor was needed to plant and harvest crops. Steel highways, railroads, it's time to open shops. Companies paid for labor from the state, which was convicts. It was harmless, in fact, the ones they targeted black. That's the struggle of a man, working on the chain. Yeah, yeah. That's the trouble of a man Working on the chain Gang The was really worse than slavery Why? Cause with convict leasing No one even cared if you died With slavery If you pass away They'll lose their investment With convict leasing They'll just replace you When death hits Ages 14 to 70 They will work heavily Six days a week From dust to dawn Little food to carry on Some children as young as Eight years old Was enslaved Working hard with the grown up Strapped to a ball and chain That's the struggle of a man Working on the chain, yeah, yeah. That's the trouble of a man. Working on the chain, yeah. 
There was an increased need for infrastructure to move goods. Rail system highways demand steadily coming. The good roads movement secured federal funding. More shoveling, grading, leveling, digging, they dug in. Enslaved blacks built the wealth for the country again. Farmers could transport crops to the market and then manufacturers could ship goods across country. Travel easy now. Even today they still work and may give them pennies. That's the struggle of a man working on the same. You just heard a clip from Slavery by Another Name on convict leasing, and that was followed by K.O. featuring Jay Morris, convict leasing. And, you know, if there was a song to really break down convict leasing between this one and the one by Jake Schizer we always play, yeah, for sure, it breaks it down. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas. We're joined by our guests, Savannah Eldridge and Chifa Rahman. So I'll start with uh, Savannah. We'll start with you this time uh, with uh, your feedback on the clip that you just heard. Well, um, I appreciate the clip. I've um, seen slavery by another name several times and actually Max and I went to Alabama and we had our uh, event, our slavery by another name in-person event yep. in Alabama as well as our um, our artistic expression event on the webinar. So very familiar with it and um, it's a great resource for folks who have not seen it to help you um, understand um really um, how convict leasing has evolved and and essentially it's still going on. Um, it was an educational tool for me, um, very appropriate right now, and that second clip was amazing. I think I heard it before, but um, it does really break down um, convict leasing, and I had never looked at it like that before as like being worse than slavery, but when you put it in context and the way that people were really disposed of and thrown away um, and really treated uh, like they had no value, although, you know, they were um, being paid for, you know, being paid for, not being paid, but um, it really brings things into context for me. So very appropriate, and um, I appreciate you guys for for sharing that. Brother Shifa, um, I just want to say, man, I, I just realized when I heard this song again, that it may have been influenced the creation of that song by K.O. from the Sugarland 95. Remember in the line he mentioned from 14 to 70. That's a direct quote mm-hmm. from the Sugarland 95. Brother Sheepa? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like definitely, definitely it was good to catch that. I don't know. Yeah, good, good to catch that. I think on the on the second list. And I mean, 
I mean, it's it's really it's really important to not understate the influence that like finding and discovering this and doing the historical research that Reginald Moore did into into our understanding of the fabric of American society. That this that this is something that is too important to be understated. And uh, the song does that really well to um, to elaborate about the, this history, um, elaborate about this history, and the um, and the absolute um, what we have go come from uh, throughout this time, at, right after slavery, that we were still being targeted and surveyed against um, by um, by by uh, the state. Um, so yeah, I think uh, my reaction overall to this uh, clip was uh, it helped me. It I guess um I guess it informs me about um it informs me about what we what we are able to create and what we're able to reproduce to disseminate um disseminate archivally um and that's what I give major credit for abolition today for doing this work and adding this piece into into its archive of um of history that generations down the line will be able to, to know about this and uh and carry and carry this throughout their uh, throughout their understanding and their practice of uh fighting for for our right to be and to exist without being targeted, without being surveyed, without being incarcerated, without um finishing that. I so yeah, appreciate a lot of the ethos of it. Um yeah, a lot the clips Thank you, uh, going on that's a quite literal statement that you're making. Uh, Sister Joy James has got the funding and is putting together a digital archive that we've been invited to become a part of, a historical archive for uh, black history. So, yeah, we literally are doing that and putting it on record. And speaking about things that must be spoken about, uh, too many are concentrating on uh, symptoms <laughs> when they should be looking at the root cause of things. You know, if you're in the middle of a war and you keep getting shot, band-aids ain't the solution. Bandages ain't the solution. You got to stop right. the shooting, you know? Uh, but that's how we treat it right now. And it, I know a lot of it is miseducation, misunderstanding. Most of us never knew there was an exception clause in the 13th Amendment. Even scholars, some of the best scholars in the United States, and we've spoken to them. You'll hear one tonight, as a matter of fact. Uh they didn't know. Uh, it, it's, it's very much a, a new phenomenon in their understanding of how United States history works and the change from chattel slavery to what we have today. It was not abolished at any point in time ever. Brother Moore mentioned that convict lease, and I guess he was talking about it. Texas went back as far as 1808, and then it was finished in 1912. Uh, in other places, it went up to 1928, convict leasing, as we know, it, like in Alabama. And it began much earlier, in 1777 with Vermont, the first one to put in an exception clause. So mm-hmm. holistically speaking, crime against humanity, that is ongoing and must end. And there are victims of it. There are perpetrators of it. Uh, and we have to point those things out. Sister Savannah, any commentary on that? Don't forget to unmute. I'm here. I'm here. Sorry, I forgot forgot to unmute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'll tell you, I just, 
Um, just going back to our work, Mike, talking about education, about the exception cause. Um, when I first started trying to educate communities, the first thing folks would say was, like, we don't have any language um, that upholds slavery in our constitution, namely our state constitution, you know, not understanding that um, our state refers to, you know, the 13th Amendment. Um, and so just helping to uh, let people know and educate them as to, like, how, you know, how we're going to, um, not just what we're planning to do, but, like, what our plans are to end slavery and close the loophole. And uh, Shifa said earlier, um, just talking about um, the ways in which we influence one another's work. Like, I, you know, I've been directly influenced by CLLP and a lot of other um, organizations who are doing um, direct work related to, to history, just because I myself, I'm, I'm a student, I'm a forever student, and I say that all the time, like I'm ever learning, um, but I feel a responsibility when I do learn um, to pay it forward. And I think if if we all try to take that on, I think that, you know, like each one teach one, right? Like I could, as soon as I learned and, and really understood um, what this loophole meant for like, not just the state, but like for my community, like I felt the responsibility to try to end it and, and not even thinking that I could, but like, you know, or connecting with somebody who can help me, just something that simple, but um, just definitely not ever at a point where um, I felt like there was nothing that could be done. So um, education is paramount, and in, in the state like Texas where there's millions of people, it's going to take everybody. Like, it's going to take 100 Savannahs, 100 Shippas, a million Maxes, if we could clone you, Max, I think we might be able to get it done. Yeah, ongoing. It's an ongoing thing. And I just, I'm so appreciative, just like everybody on this call for the work that you're doing. Because I feel like everyone um, is, especially, especially you and Yusuf Max and Abolition Today, like um, I hear things in like interviews and media and you know people will say a quote and I'm like I've heard that before or you know they'll play a clip and I'm like I heard that before and I know I heard it here you know and so it's great like people are listening they're listening to you guys and and I'm listening to you so they can listen to me so it's I, we, we're all on the same thing moving forward will be the same but like hey this is still going on and this is what we need to do to to end it. Thank you very much, Savannah. Yeah, thank you, for sure. And for anyone who may be tuning in for the first time, you know, uh, Savannah mentioned the documentary Slavery by Another Name earlier, and we always encourage everyone to watch three documentaries. That's 13th, the documentary put out by Avery DuVernay, Watch Slavery by Another Name, and Do Not Resist. Watch them in that order, and you'll well, get actually, a clear you picture. Slavery by Another Name first. Because that tells you the past, and then thirteenth, the present. Okay. And then yeah, and then do not resist, which is the future. So you get that whole three right. stage uh, experience of where we came from. For sure, you have to watch all and three. Where we're going. Yep. Um, so it's not the be, end all be, be, be all, but it is a good start. It's a good start, and I posed the question earlier, thinking it was for Brian, but it's actually for you, Shifa, uh, regarding 
the uh, Babi Yar, the Jewish Holocaust uh, Memorial that was done. And I want to see how you were correlating that with Sugar Land uh, 95. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so the so my the previous um the previous campaign director for CLOP um Aviva who um who you know we've been have been able to connect with uh, shared with me this article that uh, she was reading and you know she is someone that comes uh, that is Jewish that um definitely identifies very strongly at least uh, with that but in terms of to frame to frame this conversation along, along the internet along uh, international internationalist lines per se mm-hmm. and cross, cross that the article ref- in this article in jewish currents regarding the bobby r memorial uh this um this described uh the multiple attempts and failures of trying to properly memorialize bobby r as a mass mass grave site uh, that essentially was known for one of the earliest moments of of the holocaust and um, in practicing that, if not the moment that started the Holocaust, in which uh, Nazi Germany uh, marched up uh, Jews, prisoners of war, um, the Roma people, the Roma, and uh, the other um, other groups that didn't accord with the perfect Aryan image that Nazi Germany Germany uh, perpetuated um, within Europe, marched them up this hill and shot them and shot them. Uh, as they're facing the other side and had them fall in. So this mass grave site has gone through multiple um, attempts of moralization that never cut it. However, there's, however, um, the community group that the, who did end up getting looped into um, the process for memorializing the Bobby Yar, being a film director, uh, uh, proposed the notion that in order to understand history, one must experience it itself. So one thing that they modeled was having having people walk down the path that um, that um, these people at least had gotten shot at, um, had been killed in, and um, and along with it, having them test an emotional score that kind of puts them into a role play into different roles that they serve. For example, being a Nazi, being a prisoner of war to Soviet, being um, being 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 a Jew, and having them. And having that turn it into a simulation that they enter, and that course when that was presentation of that proposal for the Bobby Yar Memorial was leaked, there's a lot of outrage that at least ensued. To reference at least why um, that article is relevant to the Sugarland 95 is as I mentioned earlier, their their memorialization practices that that are being proposed, their their um, aspects of the memorial that is being proposed right now. That is intolerable, at least to, to stand for. To um, make the Sugarland to re, you know to reify a lot of the harm that FBISD has done um, with the Sugarland with the Sugarland 95 through making it into into a grand through through a, making it into something that is grand and sensationalizing the torture that the Sugarland 95 endured by. Um, by having demonstrations of growing and harvesting sugarcane to emulate, to emulate this, and this is something that is frankly intolerable to expect for our uh, for our memorial. And that is so. Bobby Yar shows an example of what kind of what in memorialization should be avoided with regards to the Sugarland 95 in the Bobby Yar, and it's 
all about being grounded in history and engaging descendant descendant communities and and uh and providing this memorial as an educational tool provide for as a means of liber of black liberation and such that such that, as I said that is grounded in a history that accounts for the present struggles of racism of uh, systemic inequality of mass incarceration that is going on within today as well hey man brother uh, it's also receipts <laughs> literally okay. uh, crimes against humanity there mm-hmm. the DNA and descendants that you could point to and go, there's his great-great-great-grandson or his great-great-grandson right there. You owe him a debt for what you did to this man or this woman uh, or this child even, <laughs> you know, uh, as they mentioned, 14 Ooh, yeah. years old. Uh, amazing. I remember reading an article on convict leasing or some information rather, and they were saying uh, in some cases a quarter of the people were dying in some states, as much as 30% were dying, and half of that were kids, children who were being uh, re-enslaved through this type of effort. Uh, we even see pictures. Most of us here in America have seen the pictures of it's like a half a dozen uh, black children, 10, 11 years old, wearing the black and white stripes, chained mm-hmm. together at the feet. You know, we've all seen it. <laughs> you know, did you think those people were murderers and rapists? No. They were hunted in the streets, just like they did when they were slave catching or during the fugitive slave laws. And however, people, many people they needed to work a job is how many people got arrested that day. Um, Savannah? Sorry, I'm having, with, I'm having trouble with my mute button. So, <laughs> I, you know... <laughs> When I was um, researching here in the state of Texas, um, and and we didn't talk any much about it, but um, the critical race theory was like at the it was like it turned our school boards into battlegrounds, right? And you were right in the, the middle of that goal, too. I remember seeing it. Right, the goal mm-hmm. for that was, and it has been like to keep conversations about um, slavery out of the classrooms. However, um, at the center of that then was also conversations about the Holocaust, right? Um, we had in the state of Texas, I think it was 2019, they had passed a law where um, there had to be, um, I think it was Holocaust Remembrance Week, <clears throat> um, but um, the celebration of it was based on funding for like the individual schools. But the critical race theory legislation has, it it hasn't put a uh, ridge in it, but it's really called um, to question what it would look like to, like, oppose the Holocaust. I mean, people, when you talk about slavery, you know, people, especially slavery in, in terms of, like, incarcerated people, um, a lot of times people don't have a lot of compassion because they say, you know, the age-old line, you do the crime, you do the time. But what would an opposing view for teaching about the Holocaust be, right? It happened. It's well-documented, just, I mean, like slavery. But the intention for passing the CRT bill, I don't think, I, I don't want to say I don't think, I know they did not consider that this conversation would be front and center, right? <laughs> Trying to take a look at both sides. I mean, how do you look at both sides when, you know, you 
kept people in bondage for 400 years? How do you look at both sides when you took people, you know, incinerated people? There aren't two sides. There is the truth and that's it. And so when you're speaking about, yeah, speaking about, um, you know, the Jewish community, I mean, it's, I would like to see uh, more, like, conversations, interfaith conversations, um, because I think if we really talk and communicate, we'll find that, like, we are really in the same fight, right? Um, so that's really what that, that what bubbled up for me in hearing that conversation is, is really the need for, like, you know, collaborative effort and, and just interfaith and, like, Across, across different communities and helping people see that we really are more similar uh, than not. You know, you just Thank gave you. me the perfect segue for something. So uh, in an article published on June 30th, 2022, this is uh, published inside of Business Insider, Mac, uh, businessinsider.com, Texas Educators Group suggests slavery be taught as involuntary relocation to second graders. Oh, oh my God. I'm sorry. I, I'm uh, I had a whole argument about this. Please, but elaborate. Because I didn't <laughs> you know. I'm sorry. Go ahead, guys. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just the absurdity to, of that. You know, that it's now called, they want to call it involuntary relocation. Because remember, right. I think it was Texas also that they wanted to put in the textbook, so they actually came up with a textbook where they were calling those that enslaved, they called them migrant workers. You know, so what's going on with the Texas school system? Well, it's like I said, that I think it was 3979, a CRT bill, it, it really opened the door for these types of conversations like I mean involuntary relocation and I think I've made a post about it like I mean if that's the case then we have over 100,000 people in our state prison that have been quote unquote involuntarily relocated and I think that proposal by the Board of Education was specifically for second grade books Um, but again like if you're trying to keep if you're going to tell the story you're going to tell the truth or you don't tell it at all. But this is another ploy by, um, I'll just say, some conservatives to really, in this state, water down what is really going on in this state, right? Let's just tell the truth about it at the end of the day. I mean, whether it's black history, white, whoever's history it is, it's not going to change. Again, the facts are the facts. But... If we're going to tell it, then we need to tell it in a in the way that it occurred, and and in its in its truth and in its entirety. That's just my opinion. Thank Amen. you, <laughs> um, What I'd like to do, time does fly in this program. When we get in these conversations, the time mm-hmm. flies. Man. Even for listeners, they tell us all the time, it just goes so quick, and it is running out real quick. So, just one more clip that I want to get in um, to tonight. And it has a lot to do with what you were just talking about, Savannah. And when we come back, I'm going to make some time for, kind of com- for final comments for you and Brother Shifa. Uh, so what we're going to listen to is a uh, Texas TYTP constitutional webinar that was put on by Savannah Eldridge and uh, 
with your partner. Who, was, who else did you work with with this song, Savannah? Uh, that was put on by Coretta Brown, founder of The Young and the Politics and Bridges of Empowerment. And right. I was um, her secretary. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's a constitutional um, expert who is also a professor. And he's talking about how slavery ends. And while he's doing that, I don't think he understood it, but Brother Benu Ra's son uh, was one of the listeners and speakers. And for those who know this program, he was the host of Live from the Plantation, 28 episodes we did where he hosted it from inside solitary confinement in Alabama's prison. And this brother... Well, y'all got to hear it with your own ears. It is epic. And it's right. going to be accompanied by Warren G's Regulate Instrumental. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this swipe at Miseducation. Abolition, Abolition. Today. So Abolition. specifically, just to the, the, the comments that you made and then the response that you made um, on the question of slavery and whether or not it has actually been abolished in this country what what is your specific position on that that's a that's a great that's a great question sir and i really appreciate it and i appreciate the the back uh, uh back information that you gave in, in in regards to that uh anytime that you that you would hear me if i was standing in front of my classroom and i would say hey well, today we're going to go over the 27 amendments and then we got to the 13th amendment i said and i started to speak about this is what abolished slavery or i talked about a specific constitution in the state of Texas that abolished slavery and of course the language uh, uh, clearly states except in terms of uh, uh, penalty for a crime or punishment for a crime uh, there would be many ways what I would, that I would uh, encourage my my colleagues and my, my students to, to, to challenge that in terms of whether or not slavery has ever really been abolished in this country um, but I would think that just from a just from a uh, an academic uh, point of view, uh, it, it is just uh, just just stating that particular fact is something that I don't uh, that I, I don't shy away from. I would still say the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. Anytime you're thinking about what many people call the Civil Rights Amendments, what many people call the African African American Amendments, Amendments, did one of these amendments actually give uh, 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 African Americans true due process? Did it actually? To make a citizen. I think all of those things. When you think about our constitution, when you look at uh, you look at it from a state by state level, each one of them, it is very uh, 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 cognizant of you to challenge that. So I appreciate you challenging that. Uh, so I don't want you to think that when I say it, I say it just so factually. Like at that particular moment, slavery had been abolished. Of course, we know about Juneteenth in the United uh, in the state of Texas and so on and so forth. So I appreciate that challenge to that. Uh, but please know that when I say it, I'm just really just saying it from a from a totally academic standpoint in terms of just reciting what the 13th Amendment states. Okay, well, I would just add then that um, it doesn't actually say that. That's the point that I'm making. It doesn't say that. But I get what you're saying from an academic standpoint. But I think that that has also been a problem with understanding it and interpreting it and understanding where we are as a country and the issues that we see with mass incarceration, how it affects black people, um, even rounding back to the young and the politics, uh, their purpose and going out getting votes, how people are permanently disenfranchised, how we're permanently second class citizenship. I mean, there are just so many parallels to the institution and to the actual language that I think that the, the academic area is where a lot of the uh, skewed perspective is coming from. It's a lot of the, 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 the misquoting of uh, the misstatements and people are coming out regurgitating that and repeating that 
and over time it has become a mindset it has become a cultural statement it has come accepted and so people um i did many interviews about this had conversations about it and i've talked to journalists from some of the largest you know networks in the, in the country and they would be talking about that issue and i would ask them have you ever actually read the 13th amendment and most people have never even actually read it or, or, or studied it or studied the history of it and so i think that 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 is um potentially harmful um, for people to be misinformed. But I do understand what you're saying. So I'm not trying to challenge you or nothing that you're saying. I understand the issue, but I understand that the advocacy on my side and people who are doing what I'm doing, that we have to be in these spaces and have these conversations and ask these questions just for clarity's sake and to make sure that the people are listening are aware of the full spectrum of the conversation. So that's what I'm just doing. And so I appreciate your comments and whatnot. And um, Thank, Thank you. you. Would, 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 I, would I be able to just uh, refer you back uh, or refer back to you for just one uh, question? Would you would you feel more comfortable if you heard someone uh, uh, with your level of knowledge, if you heard a professor, you heard a, a journalist, as you just spoke about, uh, that would refer to the 13th Amendment in terms of just chattel slavery? Would that make you feel more comfortable? Or would you still challenge it in terms of that the, 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 the amendment doesn't really uh, abolish slavery uh, for African-Americans in this country? Well, I think that we would have to go beyond the language and look to the actual practice. In 1865, okay. when the 13th Amendment was ratified, December 6th, um, they came with the Black Codes and the Vagrancy Laws. And when they started re-enslaving or re-incarcerating our people, they they leased them right back out to the slave plantations that we came off of. The prison systems in Louisiana, um, Texas, um, Mississippi were built on actual old slave plantations former slave plantation owners and masters became uh, wardens of these plantations. Um, we were leased out to the railroad companies. We were required to work for free, uh, unending. We, there's no way we could pay off our debt. Um, just everything. We got out. We didn't own anything. We didn't have property. So it just goes beyond the language to the actual practice. Um, and from the practice standpoint, and, and the names changed, we, we became um, part of the convict leasing system. So the chattel slavery aspect of it never disappeared, even to this day in prison today, people in prison are made to work for free. Uh, we make the, we see these, uh, all type of products are being made all around the world. Like there was a um, video that just came out that showed that the actual capital that was just destroyed, that furniture will be replaced by prison slave labor. So it's not an issue of just that particular adjective, if you would, it's simply that the practice that came about because of that amendment because remember before the 13th amendment um, slaves were on private citizens land after the 13th amendment we went to government property and government land but the practice of what was going on and taking place never changed we were we went from mr jim's property to state property and everything else remained the same whether it was food whether it was health care whether it was brutality whether it was treatment whether it was lack of pay uh, separation from families, uh, controlling our birth, controlling our marriage, controlling every institution of our life. So that that would be my response to that. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard Benu Hannibal Ross' son uh, from solitary confinement issue a million <laughs> paper cuts to a constitutional attorney on the Texas TYTP constitutional webinar in 2021, and that was accompanied by Warren G's Regulate. 
Man. Uh, Nurse Savannah, have you checked on the man? He just got cut a million times, so please go man, check on I was that attorney. in the room for that TKO. <laughs> I was in the room. Woo! <laughs> that, I, you know, they, you know the saying where they say you read somebody? I mean, yes. you couldn't read nobody any better than he that. He read him his and, rights right there, for real. Yeah, man, and he didn't even know, you know, the person that he was speaking to. But it was just amazing, like, um, that he he could break it down. And, that I mean, nobody could say anything after that. It was just, you know, how do you follow that? You know, right. it was amazing. But, yeah, it was – I'm glad you played that, Max. It was so appropriate and, man – I just I I didn't remember it like that. I remember it was it was ferocious, but man, <laughs> he ate it alive, and there was nothing you could say about it. Brother Sheepa, any comments you want to make? No, he read he read the whole system. Like I cannot um I cannot really emphasize what he was uh what he was uh articulating um any better. I guess like. I guess it's so important to recognize, I think, um, I think, like, exactly how and which methods, like, which methods black Americans continue to be subjugated, um, subjugated by um, this American system. And from his, at least from his perspective, um, from his perspective, it was something that uh, um, we can't, um, we can't under-recognize. And, um and I guess it I guess it ties into a lot of also what's been emphasized about that the convict lesion system being um being being a mode of extracting um human rights, um, civil rights that we cannot um sit by and uh continue to tolerate as much as white supremacy continues to wrap its arm around the fabric of around the fabric of our communities. Um, and this is, this is essentially why we push for DNA testing to, as Max said, to emphasize the, the importance to call out the crimes against humanity and why we're fighting for the, the Sugarland 95 to, um, to elaborate more on the topic that we touched on earlier, to name it after Ellis Camp number one, to get the history right instead of labeling it a colloquial, um, labeling it as a colloquial using one historical record to latch onto it without corroboration of the other pound multitudes of evidence that finds that this camp was located entitled Ellis Camp Number One after Littlebury Ellis, after the name, man whose name is on parks and streets across Sugarland, and and essentially a lot of um, it kind of makes me think as well how much of this is tied into a protection of reputation for um, the elite an elite class in society and how that ties in with a uh, racial capitalism where it seeks to protect, protect um, the identities of what um, enslavers and um, plantation owners have practiced and, and uh, at the expense of the labor force that it exploits to label them philanthropists rather than, um, rather than, um, atrociously. Yeah. Atrociously harmful and abuse in and those that abuse our communities, right? To and it's important to be able to encapsulate the totality and to not undermine and not just to give the specific lens that um that these people were were you know great 
figureheads of our societies without acknowledging at whose expense, at the, at the expense of the stories that have that have uh, served under these um, figureheads. So Brother, I think. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share websites and uh, information that you want for people can help you out with what you're doing, what's the next events. We only got a couple minutes left before we got to get into uh, final comments and sign off with a piece of history. We're making history tonight, and I'm glad that you guys are here with us when we do it. Um, and I'll explain it after you uh, let us know how we can help you, uh, where the people need to go. You've got a wonderful website. I know. I was exploring it. So want to share that information with us? Yeah, so um, our website is colptx.org. We just published a blog post today about um, that today in history is the is uh, is the anniversary of Imperial Sugar Company buying the plantations in mm. 1907. And Lisa, mm. we just published one blog post today um, referring referring to that uh, important facet of our history that Imperial Sugar, a staple in grocery stores, but has its name tied and its profits tied to um, convict labor. Um, so CLOPTX.org, that's where you can find more information about who the Sugar Land 95 is, how to get involved with uh, the campaigns that we're having ongoing, at least now, um, and to learn more about uh, the historical our historical records, our history with discovering the Sugar Land 95, then the history with uh, convict, lab- convict labor. Um, if you also want to c- connect as well, we also have social medias, um, CLOPTX on our um, on our IG, on Twitter, on uh, Facebook. We have a Facebook page as well for people that are interested in getting connected. Feel free to follow us and like us and engage with our content in and, and multiple facets. And in, and in each of the social media posts, we, there should be links with the link tree, which is link, which is well, the word link is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash C-L-O-P. And there we have more resources and information to be able to, um, for people to continue to loop in, get involved, for material to continue to be disseminated. So if you want to continue to get involved, uh, feel free to go in either of these places to and subscribe to our email list for more information on on how to get involved with the Sugar Land 95 and being able to learn about that. And I, but I also want to express again uh, how grateful I am to be a guest on the show and for CLLP to uh, be platformed into this uh, essential um, televised cast. And, and here's to um, potential future conversations and um, education about convict leasing in uh, America. No doubt, brother. I believe that we are definitely going to have those to answer some of the questions that you just had. Uh, Sister Savannah, we got about a minute. Any final comments you want to make and websites you want to send us to? Just happy to finally see um, this come to fruition and um, just encourage everyone to support everybody's work on this call. We have um, Coalition to Abolish Slavery Texas has a website, www.abolishslaverytx.org, and we also have uh, Be Frank for Justice slash Abolish Slavery. You can go to either one of those to follow our work or go to Abolish Slavery National Network's webpage at abolishslavery.us. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm glad she said that, so I don't have to do the next part. Uh, Well, let me just give my hands up up on on the the hard stop. Let me give well, a quick I'm, heads I'm up on the history. I'm going to leave it to you, Max. 
Okay. All hey, right, I'm going to pass it to you real quick. So I'm just going right. to thank our sponsors. We don't have the time to list everyone this evening. And I just want to pass it to you, Max, so you can give that history. That way we don't miss our hard stuff. Well, all right. Um, we got about two minutes to do it. So the history is real quick. Um, what you're about to hear tonight for our Bridging the Gap is a speech by Ida B. Wells about the convict lease system from uh, August 30th of 1893. Uh, she really broke it down. I looked all over the Internet and all the places that you would find such speeches. And apparently, we're the first ones to turn it into an audio and air it for everyone to hear. It's a very powerful and fitting speech. Uh, you can give a quick shout-out to our sponsors. we still got enough time, and then we'll go right into our Bridging the Gap. I do want to say thank you to our guests tonight, uh, Chifa, Brian, and Savannah. Uh, we appreciate you so much. We'll have this conversation uh, further, and thank you to everyone who tuned in tonight. Yusuf? Uh, absolutely. So thank you to Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. The IMWE Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sema Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, the Black Talk Radio Network, and the Abolished Slavery National Network. Subscribe to our YouTube and our Facebook pages. They're both abolition today. Uh, text in the exception to 52886 to join the movement. Uh, visit abolishedslavery.us to find out what's going on in your state. So... Just so we catch our, our time, we'll be back next Sunday, July 17th, God willing. And stay tuned for the, this a piece of history that Max has, uh, has recorded for us. So without further ado, it's all yours, Max. Peace. See you guys next week. Peace, brother. Abolition. 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 From Abolition. The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition by Ida B. Wells. 1862 to 1931, read by Max Parkes. Chapter 3, The Convict Lease System. The Convict Lease System and Lynch Law are twin infamies which flourish hand in hand in many of the United States. They are the two great outgrowths and results of the class legislation under which our people suffer today. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Washington claim to be too poor to maintain state convicts within prison walls. Hence, the convicts are leased out to work for railroad contractors, mining companies, and those who farm large plantations. These companies assume charge of the convicts, work them as cheap labor, and pay the states a handsome revenue for their labor. Nine-tenths of these convicts are Negroes. There are two reasons for this. One, the religious, moral, and philanthropic forces of the country, all the agencies which tend to uplift and reclaim the degraded and ignorant, are in the hands of the Anglo-Saxon. Not only has very little effort been made by these forces to reclaim the Negro from the ignorance, immorality, and shiftlessness with which he is charged, but he has always been and is now rigidly excluded from the enjoyment of these elevating influences towards which he felt voluntarily drawn. In communities where Negro population is largest and these counteracting influences most needed, the doors of the churches, schools, concert halls, lecture rooms, 
Young Men's Christian Associations and Women's Christian Temperance Unions have always been and are now closed to the Negro who enters on his own responsibility. Only as a servant or inferior being placed in one corner is he admitted. The white Christian and moral influences have not only done little to prevent the Negro from becoming a criminal, but they have deliberately shut him out of everything which tends to make for a good citizenship. To have Negro blood in the veins makes one unworthy of consideration, a social outcast, a leper even in the church. Two Negro Baptist ministers, Reverend John Frank, the pastor of the largest colored church in Louisville, Kentucky, and Reverend C.H. Parrish, president of the Eckstein Northern University at Cane Springs, Kentucky, were in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, in May when the Southern Baptist Convention was in session. They visited the meeting and took seats in the body of the church. At the request of the association, a policeman was called and escorted these men out because they would not take the seats set apart for colored persons in the back part of the tabernacle. Both these men are scholarly of good moral character and members of the Baptist denomination, but they were Negroes, and that eclipsed everything else. This spirit is even more rampant in the more remote, densely populated plantation districts. The Negro is shut out and ignored, left to grow up in ignorance and vice. Only in the gambling dens and saloons does he meet any sort of welcome. What wonder that he falls into crime. Two, the second reason our race furnishes so large a share of the convicts is that the judges, juries, and other officials of the courts are white men who share these prejudices. They also make the laws. It is wholly in their power to extend clemency to white criminals and mete out severe punishment to black criminals for the same or lesser crimes. The Negro criminals are mostly ignorant, poor, and friendless possessing neither money to employ lawyers nor influential friends. They are sentenced in large numbers to long terms of imprisonment for petty crimes. The People's Advocate, a Negro journal of Atlanta, Georgia, has the following observation on the prison showing of that state for 1892. Quote, unquote, it is an astounding fact that 90% of the state's convicts are colored. 194 white males and two white females, 1,710 colored males and 44 colored females. Is it possible that Georgia is so prejudiced that she won't convict her white lawbreakers? Yes, it is just so, but we hope for a better day. George W. Cable, author of The Grandissimes, Dr. Sevier, etc., in a paper on the convict lease system, read before prison congress in Kentucky, says, In the Georgia Penitentiary, in 1880, in a total of nearly 1,200 convicts, only 22 prisoners were serving as low a term as one year, only 52 others as low as two years, only 76 others as low a term as three years, while those who were under sentences of 10 years and over numbered 538, although 10 years, as the rules show, is the utmost length of time that a convict can be expected to remain alive in the Georgia penitentiary. Six men were under sentence for a simple assault and battle, mere fisticuffs, one of two years, two of five years, 
and one of six years, one of seven, and one of eight. For larceny, three men were serving under sentences of 20 years. Five were sentenced each for 15 years, one for 14 years, six for 12 years, 35 for 10 years, and 172 for one year up to nine years. In other words, a large majority of these 1,200 convicts had, for simple stealing, without breaking in or violence, been virtually condemned to be worked and misused to death. One man was under a 20-year sentence for hog stealing. Twelve men were sentenced to the South Carolina Penitentiary on no other finding but a misdemeanor commonly atoned for by a fine of a few dollars and which thousands of the state's inhabitants, white, are constantly committing with impunity. The carrying of concealed weapons. Fifteen others were sentenced for mere assault and battery. In Louisiana, a man was sentenced to the penitentiary for 12 months for stealing $5 worth of gunny sacks. Out of 2,378 convicts in the Texas prison in 1882, only two were under sentence of less than two years' length and 509 of these were under 20 years of age. Mississippi's penitentiary role for the same year showed 70 convicts between the ages of 12 and 18 years of age serving long terms. Tennessee showed 12 boys under 18 years of age under sentences of more than a year, and the North Carolina penitentiary had 234 convicts under 20 years of age serving long terms. Mr. Cable goes on to say in another part of his admirable paper, quote, unquote, In the Georgia convict force, only 15 were whites among 215 who were under sentences of more than 10 years. What is true of Georgia is true of the convict lease system everywhere. The details of vice, cruelty, and death thus fostered by the states whose treasuries are enriched thereby equals anything from Siberia. Men, women, and children are herded together like cattle in the filthiest quarters and chained together while at work. The Chicago Interocean recently printed an interview with a young colored woman who was sentenced six months to the convict farm in Mississippi for fighting. The costs, etc., lengthened the time to 18 months. During her imprisonment, she gave birth to two children, but lost the first one from premature confinement caused by being tied up by the thumbs and punished for failure to do a full day's work. She and other women testified that they were forced to criminal intimacy with the guards and cook to get food to eat. Abolition. 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 Abolition.